0: Seventh day of unleavened bread, and we have had a period now of time prior to to examine ourselves, to look into our psyches, our minds, our emotions, our feelings, our commitments, and to see where we are. Then we had the sacrifice of Christ at the Passover to pass over our sins just as Israels were passed over at the time the firstborn of Mitzrium were killed. So, it is called the Passover, because that was the single most important thing that occurred. God provided, or the Father did, His Son to take death in our behalf, to pass over our sins, because sin is... Uh, or has with it, uh, a death penalty. And we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God, so we were all scheduled for eternal death. It is beyond comprehension to understand how two beings, like the Father and the Son, loved human beings such as we are, even sinners, that He gave His only begotten Son, that they might have life and not perish. So, we not only sinned before, but we still sin. We still make mistakes. So, even after His death that we cele- celebrated or, or memorialized, then we had six more days following that specific day to continue to put sin out of our human lives, six the number of man here we have arrived at the seventh day, and by, let's see, it's two o'clock now, sunset, but a little after, about eleven after, that's about the time of sunset tonight, maybe three or four minutes past, so you still have uh, roughly six hours to get rid of the rest of your sin and be sinless by the end of this day. Uh, Any takers on that? (laughs) I doubt we're going to get rid of all of it. That's why we have a continuing sacrifice. Now, after the Passover, in which God had shown His incredible power and ability and love by destroying the Egyptian empire, or Mitzrayim's empire, killing all the firstborn, so that not a house was left where not one was dead, and sparing that to his people Israel, who kept the Passover that evening. Then he delivered them in tremendous power from the the Mitzrayimites, and they traveled out several days into the wilderness. And it does appear that this is the day when the Red Sea opened and they passed through. I don't know that that has been definitively proved, but it seems to be the best-case scenario and the most likely thing that occurred. That it was a time of marching out of sin, which Mithraim, or Egypt, came to be known as a symbol of. And we, during these this week, have supposedly or hopefully been marching away from sins, attitudes, thoughts, whatever we examined and found wrong with ourselves, trying to put those aside, hopefully having some success. But remember Lamentations 5 once again, where he says, Draw us to you. And it took that passing through the sea for God to deliver them. Just as we are here today, and we've been marching away from sin, but it is going to take God, ultimately, to totally deliver us from sin. And that is not going to occur, well, unless we die physically. It cannot occur until the first resurrection, when we will become eternal, immortal, sinless, and not even have a desire or a temptation to sin. That is a concept that I have wrestled with, and I cannot understand it. I look through a glass, (coughs) excuse me, darkly, as Paul said. I cannot comprehend not being tempted in some form or fashion with thinking or doing something I should not do. We have lived with temptation all our lives. We have succumbed to it all too often, whether vanity, pride, ego, lust, vanity, jealousy, ego, and pride, all those things that make up the works of the flesh. They're always there, always handy, always at tip of tongue, fingers, eyes, nose, wherever. It's always with us. So it's hard for us to even imagine that, and that is one reason we look through that glass darkly. We can't comprehend what it would be like to be utterly sinless, perfect in attitude, never having to fight negativity or any of those things, but always have an upward lifting spirit, mind, and attitude. And that's what we're looking forward to. So God reminds them, I'm going to go back briefly here to Exodus 19. We finished that chapter last night and left off there showing how He had brought them through. But I want to review for just a moment here the third month after they had come up. In verse 4 of Exodus 19, God says, You have seen what I did to the Mithraimites, and how I bare you on eagles' wings, and brought you to Myself. He has to bring us to salvation. He has to open our minds and even call us to begin the process. And it is not salvation that we are working through works. It is a gift of God, by the grace of God, the unmerited pardon, the forgiveness of God, that we can be a part of His kingdom. And that forgiveness comes through the blood of His Son. So he brought them out with none of their forceborn having been killed, of man or beast. He destroyed the empire that was holding them captive, as he's about to destroy the United States Empire. And on eagle's wings, he brought them to him. Now, just as the world devolves into world war, total chaos. Destruction and a new satanic world order, God is going to gather His people again, this time only a remnant of spiritual Israel to begin with, during troublous times, terrible times, when life is fraught with cessation, where you can be killed at any moment, at any time, wherever you are, by the powers that be or by people who are simply starving and want what you might have, if anything. So it is going to require the hand of Almighty God to bring His people together, to even find them and stir them to come. And He will bear us on eagles' wings and bring us to Himself. Then He gives some instruction in verse 5, "...now therefore, if you will obey My voice indeed..." and keep my covenant then you shall be a purchased treasure to me above all people for all the earth is mine a god is selecting today even as he did then a particular specific people he calls us by name today to be purchased by the blood of the Lamb, and to become His. We don't belong to anybody else. We don't belong to ourselves. We have to put self aside, as we heard this morning, and put God first and others first in our lives. So we have to keep His commandments. Verse 6, if we meet that condition, He says, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests, And an holy nation, these are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. And then the people in verse 8 said, All that the Eternal has spoken, we will do. So you and I have been called out of this world at the behest and the grace of God, and given His precious truth, and brought under through baptism forgiveness, and by the laying on of hands the gift of the Holy Spirit, as a comforter and a strengthener, a helper, so that we might indeed obey His laws. So, I'm going to go from there to 1 Peter. And we're going to find the same language introduced to the New Testament church. And it is in the context of uh, the Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread that Peter writes this. I don't know whether it was at that time of the year or not. I've speculated that, but certainly it has that content. And he says in verse 2, Elect those whom God has chosen, selected, that's an elected with an S on it, to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, that is, set aside by the Spirit of God, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, or Emmanuel, will say. Grace to you, and peace be multiplied. Sometimes I'm a, a little ambivalent in a way about which name to use here in the New Testament, because they referred to him as Yeshua, or Joshua, or in the Greek, or as it came to English from there, Jesus. We've seen that in the end he would be called Emmanuel, and I use that most all the time. But considering the definition of those names, Joshua or Yeshua, and of course there is controversy over just how his name should be pronounced, and that's one, one reason I fall almost by default to Emmanuel, but... That name means God is salvation, which is a general term. Emmanuel means God with us. So it is more of a prophetic name of Christ. Now here we are at the end, and he has told us in uh, Hebrews, in Zechariah 2, that he will come and dwell with us. So he will indeed be God with us, the hope of salvation. So, in a way, it is a prophecy to us, because he hasn't come in that way quite yet. I, it is very close, but he hasn't come in that way quite yet. And yet, I still think that since we came to that knowledge an understanding of what he would be called in the end, as Matthew says, uh, we use it. So, I will substitute it for the most part. Once in a while, I might say the other, but... Uh, I don't know if that's a great sin. Uh, It may not be exactly... I mean, some people just turn over in their grave if you don't say Yahshua or or try to use the original Hebrew. But we need to understand the father with the YHVH in Hebrew did not have the vowels and no one knows the YHVH should be pronounced Jehovah. That's just what they think it could be. So God... Hid or concealed the exact pronunciation of YHVH, one of his names. So, Father always works. We don't have to get too involved in all that. Anyway, just a side note and a, a further affirmation of, of using Emmanuel. He's that to us, okay? So, we were set aside by the Spirit of God for obedience. That means the law is still there. And when he says, keep all my commandments and all my charges, he meant exactly that, not only to physical Israel then, but to us today. And the sprinkling of the blood of Emmanuel. So we are called to obey, but we also need the blood because we don't always live up to what we're supposed to live up to, and therefore we need a continuing sacrifice. So he says, grace to you and peace be multiplied. That's the attitude that he wanted to send by letter and the attitude that he wanted those people to have. An attitude of forgiveness and mercy, grace and peace. And we struggle and try to have peace and multiply it among ourselves. That should be a goal. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Emmanuel, which according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again a lively hope by the resurrection of Christ from the dead. So within the Passover week, we had not only the death of Christ to begin it, but in the midst of it, we had His resurrection. It is not by His death that we are saved. That just removes the penalty of our sins, which is death. But it is in his resurrection that salvation and hope comes, because we worship the living Christ, not the dead Christ. He could do nothing for us when he was in that sepulcher for three days. He was dead, gone. No breath of life, nothing. The dead know nothing. So he could do nothing for us. But as soon as he was resurrected, he could. Now, the count of Pentecost, I think, can be shown to be the weekly Sabbath during the Days of Unleavened Bread simply by what he went through. He was crucified on a Tuesday night, killed on Wednesday afternoon, and buried before sundown. He was resurrected Saturday before sundown, three days later, 72 hours. And the next morning, he had to ascend to the Father to be approved. His sacrifice and resurrection waved to the Father for approval that he had finished the mission so that he could then represent us as Savior. So the Pentecost begins, the count of 49 weeks, obviously, has to begin on a Sunday, uh, since you count 49 Sabbaths. 49 seven sabbaths, 49 days, and the next day, the 50th, is Pentecost. So, even though it's a little murky in Leviticus 23 as to exactly what is intended, I think Christ's own experience and what He went through shows that that's exactly what it means, and that the wave sheep was offered in two pieces, two parts, because it represented salvation for those before and those after. His sacrifice, in other words, is proactive. Proactive is uh, proactive. That's not the word. Retroactive. I wanted uh, in the past as well as in the future. Now this year there's a little question on that, and I probably will go into that between now and Pentecost because uh, we had a Sabbath only on the last day, today of uh, the days of unleavened bread, and if we keep, if we, did, if we use it to start the count, that means the wave sheep comes outside the Days of Unleavened Bread tomorrow. And uh, up to this point, I have not felt that that is correct, that we should count it from the Sabbath just prior to, so that the wave sheep itself falls within the Days of Unleavened Bread. His sacrifice for all 7,000 years of man experience is the most important symbol there. The wave sheaf itself is more important in that sense than the weekly Sabbath. We have 52 of those every year, do we not? And, uh, but we only have the wave sheaf done once during the Days of Unleavened Bread. So there has been uh, a great deal of controversy over that, over the years. It's not a new argument whatsoever. It's been around for decades. And uh, people have left some churches and gone to others back and forth, some believing one way and some believing another. But maybe I'll get a chance to go back through it and reaffirm, confirm, or change what I believe on it. But from at this point, we're going to count from last Sunday, <clears throat> not tomorrow, so that the wave sheet comes during the Days of Unleavened Bread. But I would ask you to pray about that. Uh, that if we do need to make a change, God make it very clear and very apparent that that should be. I I don't foresee making a change. I studied through it pretty carefully some years back and gave a sermon on it, I'm pretty sure. But uh, nonetheless, maybe I'll have a chance to go through it between now and Pentecost, and we can always adjust it if we need to before that time comes. But I do want God's input and God's Word, and it doesn't make any difference to me. Understand? I could care less which it is, as long as it's right. I can keep it a week earlier, I can keep it a week later. No skin off my nose, one way or another. It's not a matter of ego or me being right over someone else. It's just what does the Scripture say, and how can we best interpret it to be true, and then go from there. So that question comes up from time to time, and in a year like this, it comes up more often, (laughs) so... Uh, We'll seek to address it. If you have any input on it, uh, feel free to present it. Uh, I think I've seen many different sides of the argument, but there always is something that could be overlooked. Anyway, it is by His resurrection and Him being waived for us that we have eternal life ahead of us. And it gives us a lively hope. It's not a dead hope, but a lively one in that He is alive. And he is at the right hand of God. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you. In my house, Father's house, are many mansions, positions, opportunities, it's there for us. The crown is there. If we have been sanctified, set aside, baptized, had the laying on of hands, and are now a begotten child growing toward the kingdom of God, he has reserved, Crowns for us. He made it very clear that we will, should not let any man take our crown. Anyone that would turn us away or cause us to get in ungodly attitudes, we must avoid like the plague, lest they are part and parcel of taking our crown away from us. We need to stay away from negative influence because it can destroy you. I wanted to come to Peter to give us hope. There is a lot of heavy emotion in Passover. There's a lot of self-examination, which is not pretty. It's not fun. There's a lot of struggling with self, trying to put sin and wrong attitudes out of our minds. So it becomes pretty heavy. But we need to know that there is hope. We need to know that there can be something encouraging out of it all, that it is not in vain, that it can mean something, that it can mean truly life eternal, and that it's worth the effort. If it is not worth the effort, then let's all eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. We have to grasp that it's worth the effort. Remember the big three? Faith, hope, and love, and the greatest is love. But you need faith, belief, trust, and you need hope. Hope can keep you going. Hope can keep you alive. If you lose hope, you get so beleaguered, so discouraged, so frustrated, so down, that there's no hope, you got no reason to get up and keep going. So hope is one of the big three. Very, very important. And Peter uses it a great deal in this book. And as the time draws near, and the world is cloudier and gloomier and more dangerous every day, we need to have a very lively hope and belief that we can be delivered. I felt it was important to go back through the story in Exodus during these days to remind us of what God has done in the past, and that He has The same yesterday, today, and forever. And He can and will deliver us again. Not only that, He has promised on His very life that He will do so. He says it's like the waters of Noah to Him there in Isaiah 54. That's how much it means to Him. So He's going to do it. Verse 5, Who are kept by the power of God. Do you realize you are here by the power of God? That's what it says right here. You are kept by the power of God. If the power of God were not with you, to whatever degree, brethren, Satan would have you for breakfast. Not lunch or dinner, breakfast. How quick did he get to Adam and Eve? Or how quickly, to use the right word. we by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And here we are, the end days, last time. It's ready to be revealed. It will be revealed soon. The mystery will be completely cleared up at the first resurrection. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. So God is keeping us here by His power until that resurrection. Wherein you greatly rejoice. Now we can rejoice in the hope that we have ahead of us. And yet there's another side. He says, Though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through many temptations. And that's where we as human beings are. We are here Called out, chosen to be a part of the 144,000 if we see the battle through to the end, endure to the end, as Matthew 24 says, that we'll be blessed. But meanwhile, Peter knew what was going on then, and he knew what would be coming or going on now because human nature is the same. It doesn't change, Satan doesn't change, it just gets worse. So, if need be, you are in heaviness through many temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found to praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Emmanuel. So, we need, we must, we have to go through trials, troubles, tribulations, temptations, and heaviness. What did it say about Christ? He was full of heaviness, I think. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was tempted in all points, like as we are. He knows exactly, precisely what you and I go through every day because he went through it. There are people who think he couldn't have been tempted like we are. But how would He understand us if He weren't? How would He know our frame? How would He know what I go through every day from the day my eyes open until they close at night and then my dreams are suspect? How could He know if He weren't there? He went through it. He never gave in to it. And that is the vast gulf between him and us. And thankfully, he did it without a slip. He made it. And he's there to bring us through it. And his sacrifice is bigger, his life is bigger than all of ours put together because he was the Son of God. So we'll have glory at His appearing. Verse 8, Whom having not seen, you love. Do we? We love Him, don't we? We have set our hearts, our minds, our emotions to serve Him, to do as He wishes, to prepare ourselves to be His bride at His appearing, to go on a honeymoon with Him to the Father's throne and be with Him evermore. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. We love what we saw him do, and yet we have this human nature that fights against it and wants to do what it wants to do rather than live the way we should. Though now you see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. You know, those are the things we need to dwell on. It's so easy to get our minds on the cares of this world, or negativity, or our problems, or other people's problems. And it'll pull us down. It'll pull us down. We need to train our minds and our emotions to think on higher things. To pray on a higher level. To think on positive and good things. One of the fruits of the Spirit of God is joy, just pure, unbridled joy, joy with life, joy with the future that is there before us. Now, yes, we'll have heaviness, as he's already said, but it is the joy unspeakable that is ahead that motivates us to move forward instead of rot in our own juices. Receiving the result of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come to you. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel were inspired to write certain things about the new covenant church. About God's deliverance here in the end. They were inspired to write about the resurrection. And the millennium. And they didn't know what they were writing about. They diligently inquired. They thought about it. They thought, what? God told me to write that, but I don't get it. I don't understand it. And here we are, in the grace, through the death and resurrection of Christ, the unmerited pardon, the freedom from sin, that they looked into and didn't understand. So the things God had them write about have come upon us, and yet we still have trouble dealing with ourselves, don't we? Of course, those prophets also wrote a lot about the sin and decadence and immorality and everything else that would occur here in the end time, didn't they? Didn't they? So they had a mix of all the promises of God that would come to us and the foreboding of recognizing that the future would be like the past. Verse 11, Searching water what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. What did David, What was David thinking when he wrote Psalm 22 and 23? What was he? Th- what was Isaiah thinking when he wrote Isaiah 53 and all that Christ would go through on the stake? He he didn't have a clear picture of that. He didn't know what all that meant. Now it's history to us. It's been applied for us and through the wave sheath, retroactively. It will come to Isaiah as well, among others. Twelve, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported to you by them that have preached the gospel to you with the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven which things the angels desire to look into. Even the angels don't have a clear grasp and understanding of what God is doing with us. They must shake their heads sometimes when they look down and see what humanity does and how we think. They're familiar with the Father and the Son and the 24 elders and the sea of glass and the thunder and the lightning and all the things around the throne of God and the peace and the happiness and the joy and all those things that are at the throne of God. And then they look down and see us little people created in the same image of God. Arms, legs, nose, mouth, you know, the whole thing. Very image of God. And it isn't anything like what they see up there. And so they look at it and they think, how's this going to work out? They desire to look into it and to understand it. How can God take that and make this? So it's not only a mystery to you and me, it's a mystery to the angels as well. Verse 13. Considering that, considering Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, brethren, did not understand what you and I do. Okay? Considering the angels don't even grasp fully what God is doing with you and me. What an incredible thing that is that we can understand the process and be a part of it. Wherefore, as a result of this understanding that we have, gird up your minds, or the loins of your minds. Be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Emmanuel. This is serious business. This is life or death. We will either die eternally or we will live eternally in glory. One of the two. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There are those who say that everybody ultimately is going to be saved. I don't believe it because there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, Christ said in so many words. But I do believe God is a success as a father and he's not going to let very many of his children perish. I don't think the lake of fire is going to be millions and millions and billions of people. I really don't. Because God is capable of saving people. He saved Israel when they were in captivity, didn't He? Didn't He destroy an empire and part the sea that they could walk through on dry land? I think He can handle it. I think He can get you and me there. I really do. I don't know what keyholes and knot holes we'll have to go through, but I think He can get us there. If I didn't, I wouldn't be standing here today. I'd be out eating, drinking, and making merry, knowing I was going to die and it'd all be over. But I believe it. I think even me, I know there are people who question that at times, but that's okay. Even me, I think. he can. I think He can get me there. And I think He can you too. And if you didn't think that, you wouldn't be here. So, let's gird up the loins of our minds and be sober and hope. Verse 14, As obedient children, first thing he said when he opened this book, Not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as you which has, he which has called you is holy, so be you holy in all manner of conduct. He said back there... Exodus 19, didn't he? That we would be a holy people, a holy nation, purchased by him, for him. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. That's back in Leviticus 11. And if you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, he does not play favorites. Human beings often play favorites whether it's favoring one child over another to the hurt of both, or whether it's preferring some people over others because you don't like the way these people think or act, or whatever, we tend to put some ahead of others. God is not a respecter of persons. He judges every man according to his own works, not by anybody else's. You are judged only by you. By God. And none of us has any right to play God and judge each other. We do not have that right. Not at all. God is the judge. Now, can we recognize evil? You no. Know, if somebody's out and you see them stealing a TV out of boulevard furniture, I, you could probably put together that that's what was going on. But you don't really know for sure, do you? Maybe they did pay for it. You don't know for sure. Be careful. Be careful. It's easy to throw stones. That's real handy. Easy to do. Comes naturally. But God judges each man's work. Pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. We need to live in fear. Now, how do you balance that with peace, love, and joy? The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. He holds the key to eternal life or eternal death. So recognize at the end of your life, and some of us are getting closer and closer to the end of this physical life, Some of us who are young and healthy could die in a car accident tomorrow, you know. We don't know when we're going to go. We might live to 95 or 100 and we might die at 13. We just don't know. So we need to fear Him who has the keys of eternal life. Nobody on this earth, New World Order, any of these people, the conspiracies that are going on around the world, Have control over your eternal life. Fear not them which are able to kill the body, but not the body and the soul. Fear Him who can kill both. So we should live with a certain amount of fear every day. And use it as motivation to get on our knees and ask for forgiveness and help and strength and mercy and love toward others so that God might overlook our sins and count us worthy. It isn't decided until it's decided. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conduct, received by tradition from your fathers, living the way people have lived, and then God begins to call you out of it. But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. That's what we were redeemed with. That's what purchased us to be the children of God, is His precious blood. Who truly was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Peter still thought that he would live to see the resurrection. He didn't know at this point yet that he had to die even though Christ had told him that, and that it would go on for about 2,000 more years. But it's even more befitting today than it was then, because we are now right at the end of the age and the return of Christ. Verse 21, "Who, Who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God? That's where we look seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit to unfeigned love of the brethren, in that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. How is your heart purified? Your heart, by nature, is deceitful and desperately wicked, and not even you can know it. Who can? God even has to ponder it. It's purified by obeying the truth. If you want a pure heart, that's the way to get it. Obey the truth, and your heart will begin to purify through the Spirit. And the result is, not put on, not hypocritical, but unfeigned love of the brethren. That is the result of obedience to God and the purifying of our hearts. The test is that we love one another. That's how people know whether we're the disciples of Christ or not. That's bottom line, how it is known. It's how God knows. If we set ourselves aside and put others first, becoming a living sacrifice for others, then God doesn't have much trouble figuring out that we're one of His and that our heart is where it ought to be. But even as we do that, we have a right hand and a left hand. And we are so selfish, we like for the right hand and the left hand to know what each other is doing. They, they play patty cake and, and they compliment each other on how wonderful they are and the good works that they do. That's not unfeigned love. That's selfishness, hypocrisy, and self-righteousness. What we do, we should do out of the love of God for the sake of others without patting ourselves on the back. Let God do that. Let Him take care of it in His way and not take credit to ourselves and destroy the blessing that comes from pure obedience that is unfeigned. We are going to be judged by God, brethren. Alright, we got us a little group here and some on the telephone line. And God is judging us by how fervently we love one another. We need to be very, very aware of that. Being begotten again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed. by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. That's the message we're told to preach in Isaiah 40. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away. Quoted directly from Isaiah 40. But the word of the eternal endures forever, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached to you. We're all going to die, but what's going to happen In the end, will we be resurrected to glory? That's our hope. That's why we need to be serving God fervently and seriously with the loins of our mind girded up and soberly. So, wherefore, in chapter 2, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speaking. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Human nature is filled with verse one malice, guile, hypocrisy, envy, and speaking evil of others. That comes naturally, just rolls off the tongue. That's everybody. That's human nature. We read about that this morning in Ephesians 4, did we not? Grieve not the Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed to the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. This is Paul writing this. Peter said almost exactly the same thing. The Spirit of God is grieved. Have you ever felt grief at the death of a loved one? Death of an animal? Something you did that brought grief to others and to yourself? Grief is not fun. Grief is hard. And God is grieved by bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking and malice. It grieves Him. I don't want to bring grief to God. I would love to please God in every way that I can. So he says, instead of those emotions, be you kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. How, brethren, can we not forgive others their trespasses? How can we be so callow, so hard, so ungodly, so steeped in human nature that we cannot forgive others and move on. And we carry things year after year after year. How can we? Considering how much Christ loved every one of us is absolute sinners. And He forgave us all of everything. Doesn't matter what it is. He forgave us all. Are we better than Him? Do we have a right to do something He wouldn't do? Hold people's sins over their heads? God doesn't do that. If we're to be like God, we cannot do that. Can't. Love one another with a pure heart fervently, is the way Peter puts it. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. You know, a babe doesn't have malice. He doesn't have guile. He's not a hypocrite. He doesn't have any envy, and he doesn't say anything bad about anybody, does he? All he does is nuzzle mama looking for nana. Give me the sincere milk of the word. That's all that baby cares about. Well, it may be a wet diaper, but we get the point. He wants us to be that way. Simple, as unconniving, as pure as a little baby whose only thought is mommy milk. That he might grow thereby pure, sincere, unadulterated word of God. If so be you have tasted that the eternal is gracious, haven't we? I shouldn't be in the kingdom of God. And you shouldn't be in the kingdom of God, should you? We've sinned and come short of the glory of God and the penalty is death. So when that Passover comes, I have to sit there and marvel that God has taken one such as me and given me the opportunity to be forgiven and my sins expunged, removed, gone. And I don't have to suffer the penalty of them. It's always a very emotional thing. And I think it probably is with all of us to realize as we sit there that God has accepted us. And we have tasted that he is gracious, to whom coming as unto a living stone, not a dead man, a live one, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. You also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Emmanuel, just as he told us there in Exodus 19 and other places. Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believes on him shall not be confounded. It is the level of belief that is the key. If we believe him enough to do what he said, and to love each other, and to love God, we will not be confounded. We will receive the reward by the grace of God. Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, wherefore they were appointed. God has appointed us to come out of sin. The rest of the world is sold in sin. But you are a chosen generation. Think of yourself that way. You're a chosen generation, a chosen person, a royal priesthood. We need to live as royalty. You know, the royalty in the world looks down upon the peasants around them as being lesser beings, don't they? They're above all that. Their conduct doesn't always speak itself well of them, but that's the way they view themselves. And God, through Christ, has put us in the position of royalty to be kings and priests in the world tomorrow above everyone else as the bride of Christ. So, we need to live as if we were royal. God judges people different who are put in positions of leadership that is very clear. Twice the judgment at least. And when you read through Kings and Chronicles, which we saw part of this morning, it talks about good kings and bad kings. Does it talk about Joe and Tom and Bill and Harry and Jane and Jill? And whether they were good or bad people? No. Just the kings. God does not have a list of Joe and Bill and Jim and Jill out here, necessarily. But He is focused on you and me in a different way, because He has called us to be royal. We will be judged as kings, each and every one of us. We need to live the way a king ought to live, especially the great king in the heavens, king of kings and lord of lords. He's the one we're to be like. We need to keep this in mind. You know, we can look at ourselves, and we have to talk about it some, about how we are human and how the human nature is there and continually be reminded of sin and all those things. But that can get discouraging if that's all we focus on. And Peter is telling us here to gain hope by focusing on the fact that we are called, that we're royal, that we are a holy nation, a purchased people. God thought we had value, you and me. Enough value that he applied the purchasing power of Christ's blood for us. That's how important he looks upon us. Now everyone is going to have that chance at some time before the plan is finished. But our chance is now... And we have the opportunity to have the highest offices in the kingdom of God eternally as the bride of the Lamb of God. That's what is offered you and me. And we need to live that way. To live up to that. So it's not just being kicked for our sins, but it's being inspired by our potential of what God intends us to be. That you should show forth the praises of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. God has shown mercy upon us and revealed His truth to us. That cannot be said by very many people on the face of this earth today. He hasn't revealed the truth to very many. They won't get it until the millennium or the great white throne judgment won. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they shall behold glorify God in the day of visitation. Let's skip on down a little bit. I don't have time to go through this. But recall what Christ did for us. Let's go down to verse 20. For what glory is it, if when you be buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently? If you have a fault and somebody recognizes it and buffets you or chastises you or whatever for it, and it's true, and you take that patiently... Is that acceptable? Is that good? But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take that patiently, this is acceptable with God. So if you deserved it, hey, it's no big deal. And taking that with patience ought to be automatic. When you do good and you get buffeted for it anyway and you take that patiently without your ego and pride coming to the fore and getting all upset and excited and trying to prove you're right and they're wrong, then that's acceptable to God. Pride, vanity, ego, defense of self is not the way Christ did things. He just didn't. For even here unto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that you should follow his steps, who did no sin. Everything that was done to him was false, false accusation. Neither was guile found in his mouth, simple, honest, pure, true, all the way through, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. He was in a position to say, when they were putting crowns of thorns on his head, stripping the flesh off his body with a cat of nine tails, (coughs) driving nails through his hands and feet, he could have said, I'm going to live again and I'm going to see you boys again and am I going to have it in for you? He could have said that. Said it might not have happened that way because he would have sinned in so doing. But he didn't. He just took it. Isaiah 53 is full of the attitude he had. (coughs) He threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. God is my judge. You can say anything you want about me. Okay. I'm not going to get upset about it. Not going to fight it. Not going to answer. We all get accused of things, don't we? It's better just to turn it aside and say, consider the source, move on. No sense in even trying to answer it all. What's the point? God is the judge. And people will take one side or the other regardless, so why bother to try to go through and explain everything and try to justify ourselves? To his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live to righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. For you were as sheep going astray, but are now returned to the shepherd and bishop of your souls. We should be so very, very thankful for where we are. Let's move on here a little bit. Uh, verse 9 of chapter 3. Not rendering evil for evil, railing for railing, but contrariwise blessing. That's a tough one, isn't it? When somebody's just absolutely railing on you and rendering evil for evil, isn't it natural to strike back? That's our human carnal reaction and the easiest way to go. No, he says, bless. When did Job get blessed again? When he prayed for his friends. When we pray for our enemies and those who despitefully use us and persecute us, then is when we're getting somewhere with God. When we return blessing for cursing. That's a hard one to come by. That's a tough one because it goes against the grain of human nature all the time to do that. And we have varying degrees of correct conduct when it happens. But we have to fight it. We have to go there. That's what we need to be. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil, and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him hate evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. I saw a good one the other day that I've repeated to a few people I might mention again here. I thought it was so good. I'm trying to remember it It says, don't waste your words on those who deserve your silence. Think about that one. (laughs) I'm going to try to remember that and inculcate it into my thinking and my speaking. For the eyes of the Eternal are over the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayers... But the face of the eternal is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? And if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are you. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. We get accused at times, don't we? We don't like it. But if you suffer for righteousness' sake, it ought to make you happy. I did what was right and I suffered anyway. That ought to be a pretty good emotion, but we still don't like it when other people put us down. It's just, it's just hard to take. But sanctify the eternal God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conduct in Christ. You do the best you can, and if people criticize you, that's too bad. Take it in stride, move on, pray for them, bless them in any way you can, and just consider the source and move on. It doesn't do any good to fight over it, to frustrate over it, It just is what it is. And the hope that lies in us, people interpret to mean be ready always with an answer for every doctrine. That's not what it's talking about. What is the hope that lies within us? The resurrection. You can be able to give an answer to anybody that you're doing what you're doing because you want to be in the resurrection of the dead and be the bride of Christ. So, whatever you're doing, you're doing it for that hope. This isn't a doctrinal discussion. This is the hope that lies in us. Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conduct in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. Christ suffered for our sins. All right, let's go down to chapter 4, verse 7. I'll wind this up pretty quickly. But the end of all things is at hand. Be you therefore sober and watch unto prayer. That's the way he opened this book. Be sober. The end of things is near. Pray. If we really realized our spiritual poverty, we would be praying diligently. It's when we think that everything is okay. Everybody else is bad, but, you know, I'm I'm, I'm basically all right. I'm okay. Revelation 3 again. That lukewarm attitude won't get us anywhere. It got us spewed out and splintered and scattered and destroyed is what it got us. It's time to be sober. And above all things, things, consider everything that needs to be done. Consider all the words of God. Consider His plan, His purpose, everything there is to consider. And then Peter says, under inspiration of Almighty God, above all things, nothing comes ahead of this. Have fervent love among yourselves, for love shall cover the multitude of sins. How many times have I quoted in the last two or three years that God is going to judge us, and Christ said it in so many words, by how we treat each other? That's why nothing is more important than how we treat each other because that reflects our worship of God. Christ said in so many words, as you treat each other is how you treat me. You show your love for me by how you treat others, in other words. So it's a physical manifestation here on the earth between you and me and how we treat each other. And that's how we're going to be judged. You are living in a fool's paradise if you think you can go to God and ask for your forgiveness of your sins and hold other sins over their heads. It cannot be done. That is not God. That is not God's way. The only way you can be forgiven is to forgive everyone of their sins, just as Christ is willing to do. We have to be like him. So Peter is saying a truth here. You might say, well, the first commandment is love God above all else. That's true. But He judges our love for Him in the first commandment by how we treat one another. That's how He makes the judgment. The proof of pudding is in the eating. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. Verse 12, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing had happened, but rejoice. When we have trials, troubles, tribulations, turmoil, rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with the exceeding joy, because your glory will be revealed at the same time. Go on down to chapter 5, verse 5. Or verse, uh, yeah, 5. Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves to the elder. Yes, all of you be subject one to another. Be clothed with humility. What you wear, that people see, is humility. Not pride, not vanity, not ego. Humility. For God resists the proud and gives grace to To the humble. He hates pride. None of us should have pride in anything. What can we be proud of? Nothing. We didn't birth ourselves. We started out as a result of some other process than our own. And we haven't done anything since to brag about. Even God the Father didn't say He was proud of His Son. He said, I'm well pleased. There is a difference. Pride is a carnal, human, or satanic emotion. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time. Don't exalt yourself. Let Him do it when the time is right. Casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. All the cares you have, you need to take to God in prayer. He cares for you. He died for you. He was resurrected for you. He lives, forgiving you every day that goes by, and He will resurrect you and make you immortal. Be sober, he says again. Be vigilant, always watching, being very careful, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour, whom resists steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who has called us unto his eternal glory by Emmanuel, after that you have suffered a while. After that you have suffered a while, except that. It is a reality. We must suffer a while for our character's sake for learning to love, for learning to turn to God and to love one another fervently. Suffering is designed to change us, to help us be what we ought to be. We do not change much without pain. That is just a fact of humanity. Adversity, pain, trouble drive us to God. So we should count it all joy when we suffer difficulties because it will help turn us to God. After you have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you to Him, to Emmanuel, to our Savior who died and was resurrected to, for us and was waved before the Father for us as well. Be glory and dominion forever and ever.